Well, thanks to the ministers and elders for the invitation to preach here today, for having me back so soon. It's uh, good, good to be here. Let us pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we ask now the help of your Spirit. Without your Spirit, we cannot understand, and uh, your Word will be a dead letter to us, but with your Spirit, Lord, you can drive these truths home to our hearts. So may he work, and may the Lord Jesus be exalted, and may your name be glorified. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you turn, please, to 2 Corinthians, the passage we read, chapter 11, 32, chapter 12, verse 10. And I'd like us to look at this whole passage, uh, but words from to Paul from the risen Jesus in t- chapter 12, verse 9, can provide a focus for us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I think these are apt verses, and this is an apt text, when we are beginning what is in effect a new year in the work of the church. I'm sure we enter it with anticipation. We are looking forward to it, and yet I'd be surprised for those of us who are involved if there was not a sense of nervousness and a sense of felt weakness and inadequacy. Certainly, I know that has always been my own experience in teaching, as I'm teaching now at college and in preaching. When I was in pastoral ministry and still today, there's a gap between what I consider the ideal of thorough preparation and the spiritual vitality of it and what the reality actually is. And I'm sure many of us would relate to that, a sense of inadequacy, but that is good for us. It is a good place to be. We tell our children, don't we, as soon as they begin to be able to do things for themselves, not to boast we, we do all the boasting for them, I suppose, but we tell them not to boast because boasting comes from pride and pride is at the root of all sin and we don't want that bud to grow. But I would like us to think this evening about what I'm calling paradoxical boasting Paul is reluctantly boasting in this section of 2 Corinthians from chapters 10 to 13, and he's doing so because of the threat posed by false teachers who Paul, in chapter 11, verse 5, sarcastically calls most eminent apostles. They're offering a message of power, prosperity, and extraordinary experience. 
And these were things to be shared and boasted about. And such false teaching is, of course, around today. At its most grotesque, it says things like, if you have faith, you'll be rich, you'll be healthy, you'll be successful in everything you do. And tragically, that teaching has great traction amongst the poor of the earth, the financially poor who see the leaders flashing around in nice suits and in private jets and think, therefore, that the message must be true. But I think there's a spectrum in this. At the more sincere end, where those saying such things are are true believers, the impression can be given that there must always be victorious answers to prayer for financial provision, for conversion, for empowered witness, and so forth. And in both cases, the error is is perpetuated by relating experiences. It always results in a kind of boasting. We are not immune. Probably we wouldn't fall for the grosser manifestations of this, but we know and we hear of powerful leaders emerging, often impeccably orthodox in theology, but they they basically come and say, do things their way, and all will be well. And because of threats such as this, Paul finds it necessary to engage in ironic or paradoxical boasting. A paradox is, a dictionary has said, a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or proposition which, when investigated, may prove to be well-founded or true. And we have here Paul boasting in a paradox laid down by Jesus himself. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Strength in weakness. So our subject is paradoxical boasting, and we're going to consider, first of all, boasting in shameful humiliation, Secondly, boasting in surpassing experience. And lastly, boasting in ongoing weakness. So first of all, boasting in shameful humiliation. And this is why I have brought in the end of chapter 11. We're thinking about the last four verses here of that chapter. Paul says in verse 30, If I must boast... I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity or which show my weakness. And in this passage, he brings before us two such things. As a prelude to the second of these, he also mentions some extraordinary experiences that he has had. Now note, Paul is not saying that we should be quick to speak of these things. 
he makes clear throughout this section of 2 Corinthians that the false teachers are driving him to it. So we're not, on the one hand, to boast about great things we've accomplished or to be blabbering about how weak we are. But there are times when it's appropriate to share such things in order to defend the gospel. So bear that in mind. But Paul goes on in verse 31 and he puts himself on oath. He says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. It's lawful to do that, but it should be rare. It should be rare to put ourselves an oath like that. And Paul is most likely here looking back on the hardships he has already mentioned and forward to what he is going to say about his humiliation, his ascent to paradise, and thorn in the flesh. So he comes in verse 32 to 33 to his shameful humiliation. In Damascus, the governor under Aratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Paul also refers to this, or rather Luke refers to it in Acts 9, 24 to 25. He relates this incident, mentioning that the Jews were angered and were seeking to kill him. And likely this is a little while after his conversion, and having immediately begun to preach persuasively in Damascus, he had also ventured into the Nabataean kingdom of Aratus, which is part of the Arabian Peninsula. Paul tells us in Galatians 1.17 that he went to Arabia after his conversion. And we often think of that, and it's true, this was a time of uh, being somewhat hidden, a time when he received instruction from the Lord himself. But we shouldn't think of him as entirely inactive. He was preaching. He says that in Galatians 1.16, doesn't he? That he, he, he was called by God's grace in order that I may preach him among the Gentiles. And in both Damascus and the kingdom of Aratus, he was seeing success in preaching and opposition to it, to his message. So Aratus and the Jews came together. They are both wanting rid of Paul. His early persuasive preaching could have fostered pride in Paul. There still may have been pockets of pharisaical pride remaining, but the incident here destroys that, or goes some way to destroying it. Paul relates his inglorious escape with a sense of shame. His shame isn't that he was deserting the disciples in Damascus, 
because it seems they, they had planned it with Paul in order to preserve his life. But he must have reflected on how he was strutting toward Damascus as the hunter. And he had to sneak away, probably in a smelly fish basket, as the hunted. Looking back, Paul boasts in this. It shows how God preserved this weak vessel. Apostle that he was. Great intellect that he was. Now, we can't know this for sure. I'm not preaching this as with the certainty that it's biblical truth. I'm not preaching it in that sense. But Paul may have intended here for the Corinthians to see this as a parody of one of the great military awards of the day, the Corona Moralis, or Crown of the Wall. This is worth considering. This was awarded to the first soldier to scale the city wall in a battle. And you can imagine he might have had buckets of tar and that flaming arrows coming at him and he got up the wall and helped his uh, fellow soldiers into the city to overthrow it. But of course, in, a, in, in the fog of war, it was hard to tell what was going on. And so the soldier receiving this award had to swear a solemn oath by the gods that it really was him. Paul here puts himself an oath. Not much we do know when he says, I was not the first up the wall. I was the first down the wall. Now, we can't be dogmatic on the historical reference, but we do know that Paul counters these super-apostles here by boasting about his shameful humiliation. Humiliation and failure in our lives can serve a good purpose. God is showing you, perhaps, that all those things you build your identity on, a good family name, professional success. If we build our identity on those things, we will fail. And God can frustrate, God can humiliate us in these things to show us that we must only boast in the Lord. Only Christ can save. Our identity must be that we are in Him. Not that we come from a great family or a historic church or, or anything like that. And God uses these failures to make us rely more on him. This makes us more Christ-like ultimately and more humble and understanding toward others. So examine yourself. Are you boasting of strengths and attainments? That's dangerous. Boast rather in the things that show your weakness, even in your shameful humiliations. So boasting in shameful humiliations. 
But secondly, boasting in surpassing experience. In chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. But yet, he has a sense as well of the necessity to address the Corinthians in this way and to make this clear. And so in effect, he's saying, given the situation, although it isn't profitable for me to boast, it is necessary, the vulnerability of the Corinthians to the empty boasts of false teachers made this distasteful business a necessity for Paul. He had to go toe-to-toe with these most eminent apostles. And his main concern is to boast of things which show his weakness. However, to explain why the thorn in the flesh was given him, he relates and even boasts in a surpassing experience here in verses 1 to 6. Paul relates what had happened to him 14 years earlier, probably soon after the basket incident that we've just thought about. And as Yusuf, the third person, shows his reluctance to speak of himself, but he must in this case. And so, in verses 2 to 4, he relates this experience, being caught up into the third heaven, which is equated with paradise. And this refers to the highest heaven, the immediate presence of God himself. And he hears things which would be extremely difficult to relate, even if he could. But he's not permitted to do so. Things that perhaps would be like trying to explain electricity to a a pre-Stone Age tribe or something like that. How would you go about that? The categories and all are, are, are so different. Perhaps you could talk about cutting down a tree and putting things like a vine around it and that comes into your mud hut and helps you to, uh, instead of lighting a fire, it makes where you cook hot. You, you know, you would begin doing something like that. But it wouldn't quite be communicating, would it? And Paul says, then he goes on in verse 5 and 6, that he would boast on behalf of such a man and that he is speaking the truth because it actually had happened to him. Now, such experiences are real, but they are not the norm. God can grant them for his own good purposes to strengthen and to sustain his people. It's important, however, to stress this is beyond all normal spiritual experience. If, like me, you can't relate to anything like this, that doesn't make you an inferior class of saint. That's what false teachers would try to insinuate, both in the more grotesque and 
the, the, the slightly more subtle versions of this kind of thing. Most importantly, note Paul's opening words in verse 2, I know a man in Christ. And this is Paul's description of the true Christian. They are men, they are women in Christ. And for all Christians, Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, God the Father has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So these sorts of blessings are truly ours in Christ Jesus. One day we will be with him when we die, we'll be with him in our souls in paradise. And ultimately, as we've been hearing, both soul and body in a perfect new creation. And this isn't the blessing of only an elite class of Christian. God sometimes, however, gives a glimpse of these things during this life. He did so with Paul. He did so with Isaiah. He did so with Ezekiel. He has sometimes done so in church history. But this isn't because these saints were part of an elite. So two questions arise at this point. Firstly, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? That is the fundamental question. And it's a slightly different question, of course, to are you a a church member? Or are you involved in church or, or anything like that? Are you united to Christ by faith, by the work of his spirit, giving you new birth and uniting you to him? Have you realized your sin? Have you turned from it? Have you run to Christ for refuge? And if you have done so, you've all you need in him. Your song should be, Jesus, Jesus, all-sufficient. Don't listen to those who offer some kind of elite status. But secondly, are you like Christ? So are you in Christ, but then are you like Christ? In verse 6 again, Paul explains his reluctance to speak about this experience. And then he, he says, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. At the end of the day, people can't verify such experiences. They can see a Christ-like life. They can hear how Godly or otherwise, our speech is. Don Carson, who's a very helpful exposition of these chapters of 2 Corinthians, he writes, no matter how spectacular the private claim, no matter how esoteric the putative vision, it cannot displace conduct and speech as more reliable indicators of how closely anyone follows Christ. So it's a cliche, but it's true, do you? Walk the walk and not just talk the talk. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God has his ways 
of ensuring that we do walk the walk. Even a man like Paul needed his thorn. So to this we now turn. So we come finally then to boasting in ongoing weakness. Boasting in shameful humiliation, boasting in surpassing experience, but then boasting in ongoing weakness, verses 7 to 10. So Paul says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. This was not something Paul had always been afflicted with. It came, it seems, shortly after the revelations that he experienced. What it was has been a matter of great speculation. Some ideas are credible, but not provable. Most likely it was some sort of physical impediment, perhaps combined with Paul's state of mind. He, he, he talks in Acts 18 about his state of mind when he came to Corinth. And interestingly, he had a, a, an encounter with the risen Lord there. The Lord appearing to him, keep on speaking, do not be afraid. I have much people in this city. So Paul knew physical and perhaps mental weakness. But what Douglas Moo says is helpful. Perhaps the text is deliberately vague as to what the thorn is, so that any believer, whatever difficulty they are facing, can find comfort in Paul's experience. But in any case, it was significant, and it was ongoing. Note too that Paul says it was given to him, and the implication in that is that God gave him this, that God was sovereign over this. Yes, Satan used it. it. It was a messenger of Satan. The enemy would have used it to embitter Paul and to derail Paul. But ultimately, like Joseph's slavery in Egypt, like Job's trials, and like the cross itself, God meant it for good. This, this significant trial led Paul to three intense times of pleading for it to be removed. He didn't just grin and bear it. He didn't just have the stiff upper lip that the English have, the Welsh and Irish, I think, less so. But Stoicism is not Christianity. And it's not how Christ himself responded facing the ultimate trial of the cross. Three times in Gethsemane, we see him pleading that the cup might pass from him. And he is strengthened in his weakness by an angel. In his human nature, he too needed to find his sufficiency in God. And as it turns out, Paul's pleadings with Jesus do not result in the thorn's removal. 
but he receives something better. Verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He said is in the perfect tense, which means that the answer is given once, but has permanent effect. Paul, in his own going weakness, can draw on, his own, on this ongoing promise of Jesus himself. And so he can boast in his ongoing weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the ground of Paul's paradoxical boasting. He knows the ongoing sustaining power of Jesus Christ. His motto in effect becomes, when I am weak, then I am strong. And so the comprehensive range of trials we as believers face stand under this promise. My grace is sufficient for you. And what shall we do? Well, we need to trust that this is God's way of working. Having some sort of thorn in the flesh doesn't mean that there is something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you lack faith. So I was particularly interested in Dr. Errol's book, obviously, to read about this church in the 60s and 70s. And it was interesting what we read there, where there was a particular power on the the preaching and many conversions. Some of you here, no doubt, were converted at that time. I have met people in other churches I've preached in who were converted here during that time. And it was interesting that Vernon Hyam, it was a time of great bodily weakness for him. And he he, he said, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting, but he said, well, it wasn't about anything clever I did. I was concentrated on staying alive and maybe coming out of the hospital to preach. And God did the work. But Christ's power was made perfect in weakness. And so it invariably is, do you feel your weakness individually? Do you feel your weakness corporately? Well, that may be the place for God to use you. And if circumstances change and you begin to feel stronger, uh, great, but be aware of the danger of self-sufficiency. Of thinking that some strength of your own 
explains progress in the faith or fruitfulness in the ministry, whatever ministry you're involved in. Note also that Christ's sustaining grace, it's a picture of the gospel. In the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 4, Paul is bringing his challenge to his critics to a head. And he claims that our strength is derived from union with Christ in his death and resurrection. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So, the reality of being in Christ means that this side of death, we know much weakness, and yet we also know his resurrection power to grow in holiness and to do specific difficult tasks that God has given us to do, whatever it is you're involved in in church, whatever it is you're involved in out there in the world. Increasingly difficult often to maintain integrity in Christian witness, but God can give you the strength to do so. Being united to Christ in his death and resurrection is at the heart of the gospel, and it is also a picture of what service for him is like. Paul says elsewhere that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And then, note lastly, his grace is sufficient no matter what. No matter what. I don't know what all of you face. I don't know what the congregation will face in the future, but I can say that nothing more is needed than Christ's grace sufficient for you, sufficient for us in all our trials. False teachers might say, you're defeated, or that the old apostolic message isn't enough, that it was okay in its own way, but you need something else. But it certainly is enough. Christ is enough. Let Spurgeon have the last word, getting at this in his unique way. He, he, he told about a time when he was riding home after a heavy day's work and he was feeling somewhat depressed. When suddenly as a lightning flash, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 came to his mind. My grace is sufficient for thee. And he said, I should think it is, Lord, and burst out laughing. He said that it seemed to make unbelief so absurd. It was as though some little fish being very thirsty, was troubled about drinking the river dry. And the river said, drink away, little fish. My stream 
is sufficient for thee. And then he pictured a little mouse in the days of Joseph, sneaking into Joseph's storehouses that he had put together during the seven years of plenty. And the little mouse feared that it would die of famine. And Joseph might say to the little mouse, Cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for thee. Or a man away up on a mountain saying to himself, I fear I shall exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the earth might say, Breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs ever. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Little faith will bring our souls to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to us. So take heart and hear again the words of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we praise and thank you for the word of Christ to Paul and that he was inspired by the Spirit, perhaps even reluctantly in his own self, but he was inspired to write these words and that we can profit from them. You know the trials represented here, the thorns in the flesh that have not been taken away. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient. We thank you that your grace is sufficient to save and we pray that you would do so and that your grace is sufficient to sustain us in this life that we might not fall away under trial and that we would know great comfort from yourself in those trials. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us sing together hymn number 125. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head, my God, my portion, and my living bread. In him I live, upon him cast my care. He saves from death, destruction, and despair.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.